Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I'm the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. During episode 16, Shaping Healthcare Policy, Greg Chesmore and I discuss his career in healthcare policy, including the unique ways his company, Gridiron Public Affairs, influences the development of positive healthcare policy, the Inflation Reduction Act, and other current healthcare policies, and Greg's passion about his personal role in patient advocacy. Before we dive in a bit about Greg, he launched Gridiron Public Affairs in 2022 to assist healthcare stakeholders in crafting holistic strategies to positively shape the policy environment. Gridiron believes the key to meaningful, lasting policy changes expands beyond lobbying to authentic strategic engagement and currently represents a portfolio of clients in biopharmaceuticals, biotech, medical devices, and patient advocacy. He began his career in the nonprofit sector before spending seven years in federal service with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. After his federal service, Greg led government affairs and public policy teams at small, midsize, and large life sciences companies. And his patient advocacy isn't just theoretical. He is an advocate. He has a long history in the Parkinson's disease community, including leadership roles with the American Parkinson Disease Association and as a strategic advisor to the Parkinson and Movement Disorder Alliance. Hoping you enjoy listening to episode 16 as much as I enjoyed talking with Greg. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are thrilled to have you today. I know you have got lots of interesting information to share with us, so we're going to go ahead and uh, and dive right in, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. All right. So if you would, kindly share with us what Gridiron Public Affairs is and what it endeavors to accomplish. Well, thanks for that that question, because I, I think when people hear public affairs, there's there's probably a lot of confusion as to what it is that public affairs and government affairs firms do. But mm-hmm. uh, at Gridiron Public Affairs, we, we really strive to work with organizations and companies uh, to really help them um, first and foremost understand how what happens in the public policy arena, whether that be at the local level or the state level or the federal level, impacts their business, Mm -hmm. and then uh, develop appropriate strategies um, for them to positively impact the policy space. So, um, you know, once organizations kind of identify, hey, in the healthcare space, this is what's important to the patients that we represent, the patients we serve. Um, if it's a company, this is, uh, you know, what we can do to um, make sure our company succeeds um, in the healthcare space, um, you know, making sure that the company succeeds and ultimately does the right thing for patients. Uh, mm-hmm. Here are the policy issues that are going to um, be impactful. And then how do we go about uh, making sure that we're adding value to the discussions that are going on um, on those issues in state capitals, uh, in city halls, or in the halls of Congress? Hmm. Very important work. Very important work. And what makes Gridiron's approach to shaping healthcare policy unique? Yeah, I, I think when we when we think about 
government affairs, public affairs generally, um, people think of lobbying. Um, and that's a really important element, um, mm-hmm. making sure that, you know, we're having opportunities to interact with policymakers and their teams of assistants who are helping them uh, craft policy is incredibly important. But you can have uh, you know, the best piece of legislation, the smartest lobbyists, the best connections, but if you don't really have a strategy um, that encompasses a variety of different angles, um, you're ultimately not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really starts at the end of the day of, of sitting down with multiple stakeholders. I mean, thinking about an issue and thinking about every uh, individual, every organization, every agency that that issue touches and mm-hmm. sitting down and, and talking about those issues and having dialogue um, and saying, okay, we, we think this might be an issue, let's say in the healthcare space to patients accessing services that they need. Um, if you think that as one part of the equation, that there's an issue, your best bet is to really pull together a diverse uh, group of stakeholders and really run that hypothesis by them. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, if it really is a problem, it's going to be validated from all of those different stakeholders. And then you sit down together um, and say, what type of policy changes would benefit patients in this particular regard? How could we ultimately um, make a difference for patients? Uh, one piece of the equation, you know, one organization coming from one perspective, going in and trying to just do something on their own is rarely successful. The mm-hmm. best strategies are really um, coalition-based. They are, um, you know, all stakeholders coming together, bringing their unique skill sets, their data points, their experiences to the table and putting something together that uh, what we call a holistic strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing that can be pretty uh, challenging. Uh, And and for a lot of companies and organizations, they really don't know where to start. So what we do is is really walk them through that process so that when they get ready um, to advocate on behalf of a specific issue, there is a very well thought out strategy behind it. Um, it has multiple uh, voices that are mm-hmm. amplifying that perspective um, and the odds of success in terms of, um, you know, passing a piece of legislation or crafting uh, some sort of public policy. Those odds of success definitely increase when you look at things more holistically. Yeah. Well, that makes it makes perfect sense. And and I'm wondering, Greg, if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to, I don't necessarily want to characterize it as a, as a downside of having multiple perspectives, but it certainly is challenging, I would imagine, at times, because not everybody, of course, is coming from the same place. So how do you sort of shake out those perspectives that may at times be um, completely adverse to to one another? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's 
uh, is something that needs to be carefully thought through. I mean, obviously, you'd love to go into this situation with already established, strong, trusting relationships with Mm -hmm. the organizations and individuals who you'll be asking to partner with on this initiative. If those aren't there, um, it it is more difficult if perhaps those relationships have been strained uh, in one way or the other. But at the end of the day, keeping things focused on bottom line, especially in healthcare, how can we ultimately make this situation, this challenge that people are having, how can we make it better for real people, for real mm-hmm. patients? Mm-hmm. Um, and it would benefit all of us um, in order to kind of remove this barrier so that people can can get the care that they that they need. Um, so I, I do believe that at the end of the day, trust is first and foremost, and, and that's why it's always important in this space to create and then cultivate and maintain really strong relationships with uh, key stakeholders, mm-hmm. even when you're not working on something, a piece of legislation or trying to to impact a regulation, but keeping those relationships strong, um, keeping those lines of communication open. Um, But then at the end of the day, it really comes down to respect, respecting where each individual stakeholder is coming from, understanding the challenges that, that they may have, understanding that they have different constituencies that they need to serve. So their Mm -hmm. position and their ability to do things might not be as, uh, clear or as strong as you would like them to be, but really accepting people for uh, and, and organizations and companies for for who they are, what they are, and how far they can go. But finding again that that common ground of making a real world impact and pulling that together. And there are some organizations when you think about in the healthcare space, patient organizations are incredibly important because they can bring that unique patient perspective, that narrative to the table, which is so important. They can mm-hmm. bring patients to sit down with legislators and explain to them um, what they're going through on and putting a human face on what sometimes could be just viewed as a, as a policy issue. Um, but the healthcare provider perspective is also incredibly important. And when I say Healthcare provider, I don't just mean the physicians, I mean their support teams um, Mm -hmm. who oftentimes are playing a a really important role, working side by side, helping patients, and and in some cases, navigating the system for them. Um, They see challenges probably even more than than physicians um, themselves see them. So making sure that their perspective is included. All of that um, really at the end of the day uh, helps to bring the right messages to the right audiences, hopefully at the right time, because policymakers are people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're real people. Um, they're not inanimate objects. Um, they, they have their own um, stories. Um, their patients themselves. Um, they have relationships with people who have struggled, um, you know, 
in the healthcare environment. Um, and it's really important to do your research to find out who the best messenger is going to be to that particular legislator. And mm -hmm. if you pull together this really great, diverse um, group of organizations and individuals and companies who are supporting this, you can identify the right spokesperson in advance and, and really have the most impactful interaction with that policymaker. Wow. I mean, your, your firm sounds like you have spent an enormous amount of time really figuring out what this holistic and inclusive approach should be. And undoubtedly, you've been able to test it quite a bit over um, over the last couple of years. And I, I just applaud you for really being able to be insightful and open-minded when you're going about trying to figure out how to bring a variety of perspectives to the table. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and a lot of it has been, it's been based on failure, right? I mean, you, uh, the beauty of, of your uh, career and your, your team's perspective is, is you go in and um, you sit back maybe after you have to lick your wounds a little bit, not getting what you wanted um, out of the process and say, how could we do this a little bit differently? I mean, where, mm -hmm. where were the dynamics just not quite right? And in the policy space, um, you know, at the federal level is, you know, it is its own animal, you know, with federal agencies and, and Congress and the administration um, at the state level, if you've seen one state, you've seen one state. Mm -hmm. um, what works What works in Missouri is not necessarily going to work in Nevada. Um, so you really need to, um, you know, customize your strategy. But yet there are some things that I think as a general rule, um, if you don't do, you're less likely to be successful. And I think over time on a variety of different issues, um, I think we've been able to identify, hey, here are the things that are pretty, pretty important regardless of where this, um, where this battle is taking place. Um, but then also acknowledging that there and recognizing early on that in some cases, the strategy is going to have to be shaped a little bit differently based upon the dynamics um, in whatever venue you're going to be um, pursuing your goal. Yeah, really interesting, really interesting and, and hard work at times, I would imagine. It can be. Um, it, it can be frustrating. Uh, mm -hmm. the, leg the legislative process, the regulatory process can be very slow. Um, and this is especially true at the federal level, um, where things uh, just seem to kind of move at, you know, glacial speed. Um, the state level, things move a, a little bit, uh, a little bit faster. Um, but uh, sometimes for someone who is a is a pretty impatient person like myself, uh, and especially, I think, when you see an issue that is so clearly um, negatively impacting um, specific populations, I do a lot of um, work in the rare disease space. Mm. Um, mm. So 
whether it's, you know, pediatric rare diseases or rare diseases that impact um, people at multiple stages of their lives, um, where these folks really don't have treatment options. Um, there isn't an approved therapy that really has broken through and given them symptom treatment um, you know, support. There, there really is just not a lot out there for them. And you want policymakers to prioritize that issue. Mm -hmm. You want them to kind of cut through some of the process so that you can expedite um, the, the, the process for these particular vulnerable populations who are truly facing an unmet medical need. Um, it can get pretty frustrating at times. Yeah. So you do have to kind of pull the reins back on yourself and realize, okay, in order to do this right, in order to be successful long-term, um, I probably do need a, a little bit, um, uh, an injection of patience in the process <laughs> because uh, policy policy work can can uh, can sometimes be extremely frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Keeping uh, the reminder that you're in this for the long haul, I'm sure, is something that you have to reflect mm -hmm. on often. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and I'm I'm with you. It's. Um, my patients can run a little thin with that sort of thing as well. So I can, I can relate to needing to uh, call upon one's patients in order to remind yourself that this is really about the long game in, in the end. Um, Greg, wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about some of the hot topics that your organization is focusing on right now. Yeah, that, that is, uh, it's a very busy, busy time in the health policy space, um, you know, mm -hmm. for my clients who really run the gamut of uh, primarily focused in life science, so biotech, biopharma, um, and national patient advocacy organizations, medical device companies, um, mm -hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed by Congress um, last late summer of 2022, um, is is top of mind. Uh, in particular, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was was a broad piece of legislation. It's really um, viewed as kind of the uh, biggest legislative accomplishment for the Democrats when they control both houses of Congress and, and President Biden. Um, but in particular, uh, it, it definitely impacts how prescription drugs will be reimbursed um, and what will be covered uh, in the Medicare program, which is mm. you know, obviously a, a, a big uh, portion of the population. It's a growing program mm -hmm. as more people age into Medicare. And so there were really some fundamental changes within the IRA um, that change the way prescription drugs will be um, covered and reimbursed by Medicare. Um, so, uh, you know, similar to any major piece of legislation, uh, most of it does not go into effect immediately mm -hmm. uh, because it requires a rulemaking process. It requires, uh, in many cases, you know, information technology and IS system upgrades and all sorts of things in order to really implement it. So the 
the agency, and in this case, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, is, you know, starting to put out guidance and say, okay, here is what the world is going to look like uh, in 2025 and 2026 when we really start to see the meat of that legislation actually become law and um, and they're working hard to operationalize it. So, so that is truly top of mind for patients. It's top of mind for um, innovative biotech, biopharma companies as they not only prepare for, okay, how does that impact us in the next two years, but even more so, how does it impact our plans when it comes to research and development and what our pipeline looks like and where we're going to invest um, mm -hmm. in uh, efforts to bring new therapies to market. So the ramifications of something like the Inflation Reduction Act and the fundamental ways that it changes how prescription drugs are paid for in the United States, that those ramifications will be felt for uh, many decades to come. Mm. And Greg, and I can imagine this could be a little bit of a complicated uh, question to ask you, but could you, for our listeners, sort of generally describe the impact that it is going to have on how prescription drugs are paid for by Medicare? Yeah. So at the, at the end of the day, I think about it in three buckets. Um, so the first one is is probably the most impactful, and that is that the government will set prices for certain drugs in Medicare. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that the government has come in and said, look, we're going to basically determine through our own mechanisms what we're going to pay for certain prescription drugs. Um, and that's a first. So, you know, the uh, Medicare prescription drug program or Part D has been with us for several decades, mm -hmm. um, but it specifically prohibited the government from setting prices uh, within the program when the law was initially passed. Mm -hmm. The Inflation Reduction Act changes that law and says that for um, what the agency views as the, are the most expensive drugs, um, they're going to be involved in, in government negotiation, which at the end of the day really comes down to the government determining uh, what price they're willing to pay for that medication. Um, so that, first and foremost, is the biggest change because um, that's something that the U.S. government has not done Mm -hmm. um, previously, and actually we're specifically prohibited from doing it um, in the initial Medicare Part D enabling legislation. Mm -hmm. the, second, mm -hmm. the second impact <clears throat> comes down to really trying to control price increases. So um, companies usually take price increases on drugs, um, just like a variety of different um, uh, products that we have on the market, there's usually a price increase um, the beginning of the year, every year. Um, 
the new law, the Inflation Reduction Act, now uh, penalizes companies who increase the prices of their prescription drugs more than the rate of inflation. So they mm. have to pay a penalty, or the government calls it a rebate, um, to CMS, to the federal government, um, if they raise their price more than the rate of inflation. So that's something to kind of keep an eye on as well. And then the third major piece when it comes to prescription drugs um, is, is a positive, and I think it's something that both the uh, biotech and biopharma community, patient groups, healthcare providers have long advocated for um, is an out-of-pocket cap in Medicare Part D. Mm-hmm. So I won't get into how Medicare Part D is designed because it can be very confusing. But at the end of the day right now, there is no out-of-pocket limit um, for Medicare Part D. So a Medicare beneficiary, for instance, who um, has cancer um, and let's say needs an oral anti-cancer medicine, um, they can oftentimes be forced uh, to bear the burden of a major um, part of their treatment uh, because the out-of-pocket cap simply didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Starting in mm-hmm. 2025, but not right now, again, something that's, you know, delayed and, and uh, you know, we'll have specific details about, you know, over the course of the next 12 months or so, but starting in January of 2025, there will be a $2,000 cap per beneficiary in Medicare Part D. So this is very positive for patients. It's something, like I said, that everyone has kind of wanted to see happen uh, Mm -hmm. for a long time. So it really provides, especially those Medicare Part D patients that um, beneficiaries that that have um, severe diseases where they require specialty medications, they have uh, some sort of ability to know, okay, I have to pay up until this point. And I think it's going to provide um, much more certainty and take a lot of stress off of, um, off of people uh, in Medicare who receive diagnoses, diagnoses like, um, like cancer or other, um, you know, really serious illnesses. Yeah. So those are really the, the three buckets. I mean, there's a variety of other things in there as well related to the Affordable Care Act and a cap mm-hmm. on insulin prices, um, mm-hmm. you know, Medicare beneficiaries. But at the end of the day, those are kind of the three most impactful things. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at affinity-strategies.com. Okay, Greg, I am wondering if you wouldn't mind expounding on 
the, the, the first aspect that you mentioned with respect to the IRA, and that is um, Part D now allowing the government to negotiate drug prices. Sure. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, um, you know, the government had previously been prohibited from doing that. So a lot of how the government is going to manage this is under discussion right now. Um, mm-hmm. The agency just put out some, some initial guidance and has asked for feedback on their preliminary thoughts on how this ultimately will happen. Um, but I think that the, the biggest point, the, the law specifies that at first um, it will uh, start with 10 drugs and then it will move to 15 drugs. And then every year there will be a, more drugs added um, mm. to this list of drugs that the, that the government can, um, can negotiate or set prices on. And the important thing is that at first it starts with Medicare Part D, which of course are, you know, oral medications that, you know, you take yourself. Um, but it will eventually um, involve Medicare Part B drugs as well, the physician-administered mm. drugs. So it really will be prescription drugs, you know, throughout the Medicare program. Uh, now, you know, how this will ultimately impact um, companies is is starting to be seen. Um, you've mm. seen particularly um, – smaller companies, you know, so the, the pharmaceutical industry um, or quote unquote drug companies are extremely diverse. You know, you've got your Pfizer's and your Johnson and Johnson, Amgen, and Novartis. Um, but then you also have hundreds and hundreds of very, very small companies. Many times those companies uh, aren't even making any money at this point. I mean, they're being mm-hmm. funded completely by the investor community because there's some sort of hope that a scientific platform um, will ultimately result in something that they can move into clinical trials and, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully receive some sort of approval from um, the FDA and be able to offer it to patients down the road. Um, but we need to keep in mind that, you know, there's a, a Tufts um, study from Tufts University that was released a few years ago that estimates that the average cost to bring a medication to market. So, you know, starting at the very beginning, when you just start to look at this in a lab, um, and it's mm-hmm. really a concept as opposed to anything more than that, to the point where you're where you get FDA approval um, runs between two and $3 billion. Wow. So yeah, two to $3 billion. So, um, you know, there are some of these small companies that don't have, you know, 25 blockbuster products on the market Mm -hmm. that are making a profit that they can use to, fund this. They really have to go out to the investor community and say, hey, we've got this great idea and really try to sell them on investing in the company. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the process itself, um, you know, from, you know, proof of concept to filing with the FDA for approval 
takes between 10 to 15 years. Hmm. The, the average medication um, spends seven to eight years of that time in clinical trials. So oh. phase one, phase two, phase three, um, and then there's some time between, you know, your phase three data that hopefully um, reads out um, and your submission to the FDA for approval. And then the, the real kicker here is nine out of 10 medicines that start the process fail. Wow. So nine, 90% of medicines that start out as this great idea, and sometimes they can make it through phase one, phase two trials, and they get to phase three trials. So it's after several years and, and hundreds of millions of dollars invested. And the phase three data just does not show that it's effective or more mm. effective than what is currently on the market. And so the company really has to scrap that. And you've been reading a lot of headlines uh, recently of companies that have kind of rolled the dice and said, we know that this particular condition, let's say Parkinson's disease, or mm -hmm. let's say a truly rare um, disease that only impacts a thousand patients, you know, worldwide. Um, but they say, you know, we believe our scientific platform here could really um, fill a need and help these patients out. And we're going to roll the dice. We're going to really invest in this and we're going to move forward. And if that fails, that money is gone. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so it's really, I think it's really important for people to understand as, as, as frustrated as we all can be uh, at the cost of prescription drugs. And there certainly have been bad actors, you know, in the industry who um, in some cases have actually gouged, you know, uh, consumers and, mm -hmm. and the government certainly has a right to, um, to get involved in those types of um, limited circumstances. But um, there's always this fear, particularly when we're looking at policy surrounding prescription drug pricing, that policymakers just aren't looking at the big picture. Mm -hmm. They're not mm -hmm. looking down the road and saying, how would these government price controls, which sound really good, how would they impact the next generation of therapies? And, mm -hmm. and what we're seeing in, you know, surveys that have been released of, you know, people who've talked to the heads of research and development at a variety of different um, pharmaceutical and biotech companies is three quarters of those companies that responded to this survey said that the Inflation Reduction Act creates significant uncertainty for their research and development planning. Mm -hmm. And over three quarters of those respondents said that they're, they're confident that there are assets, so potential medicines in their pipeline, that they will choose not to develop because mm -hmm. of this major shift in the way that the government is going to be viewing prescription drug pricing specifically in Medicare. So, um, so it, you know, we've, we've certainly, um, you know, tried to take those messages to policymakers to say, we understand and we believe there are things that can be done today to really help consumers that are having a difficult time affording their medicines. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we still have a lot of diseases out there 
um, some of them rare, some of them not so rare, where we don't have that breakthrough. We're relying on, I'm very involved personally in the Parkinson's community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for people living with Parkinson's, we are relying on, as a standard of care, fundamental drug, a drug that was approved in the 80s. We have not had the type of breakthrough in many different diseases. Not every, you know, disease is diabetes, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've made great strides. Not every cancer is multiple myeloma or breast cancer where we've seen vast amounts of innovation and new therapies that, that really have, in many cases, cured patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we haven't seen that in so many other parts of the healthcare ecosystem. So we need to be cognizant of how much work there is to do in a lot of these areas. And our policy when it comes to prescription drugs and how they're paid for really needs to be very balanced to Mm -hmm. ensure that at the end of the day, um, we aren't unfortunately looking back and saying we really missed the boat here. Um, Because at the end of the day, real people are, are, are struggling and um, are really counting on this collaboration with healthcare institutions, biotech and biopharma companies, the government to really work together to try to bring new therapies to the people who need them the most. And unfortunately, I think um, what we're seeing, at least preliminarily with the Inflation Reduction Act and just basic economic decisions that many companies are having to make is we're going to have fewer medicines um, mm-hmm. that come to market and, and potentially fewer cures. Yeah, that is a very, very unfortunate and I'm guessing unintended consequence of of the IRA. I know that your firm is going to be very busy in terms of helping policymakers kind of understand those ramifications and begin to perhaps put other maybe rules and regulations Mm -hmm. in place to assist in maybe counteracting that unintended consequence of that aspect of the IRA. And I think your answer was a great segue actually to my next uh, question. Um, on this show, we talk a fair amount about patient advocacy, and and I'm curious to hear more about your own personal passion around that. Can you tell us about your personal journey related to patient advocacy? Yeah, um, you know it's it's interesting when you, uh, as we all move through our lives, you know our personal experiences, um, they shape how we look at issues, they shape how we look at our careers and the trajectory that we're on. Um, You know, for me, I've always, um, you know, I mean, I grew up watching, you know, family members um, and friends die early um, Mm -hmm. of diseases that, um, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have died of, uh, you know, I had a good, good friend, uh, when I was in my thirties, she was in her early forties and and she died, uh, of pancreatic cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had several friends, um, you know, young parents in their, you know, late forties, 
um, die of pancreatic cancer uh, just in the last five years. Um, but for me, you know, I um, unfortunately, in many ways, I, my my partner has Parkinson's disease. Um, mm. He was that he was diagnosed at 33. Um, we are 52. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been an almost 20 year journey with Parkinson's and young onset Parkinson's disease. My dad, um, you know, passed away last year, um, because of complications from Parkinson's. My father-in-law oh my has Parkinson's disease. Um, you know, so Parkinson's and, um, you know, watching what that disease, um, does on a day-to-day basis. Um, in the fact that we don't have breakthrough medicines being approved. It is difficult. Mm-hmm. Like many neurological um, diseases, uh, diseases of the brain are really, really tough. Um, and it takes a long time and it takes a huge investment. Um, and we're seeing small breakthroughs in Alzheimer's that we you know, haven't seen in the past. And those are very exciting and we should build off of those. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've seen, you know, some things that make life a little bit easier for people with Parkinson's, like different ways of getting carbidopa, levodopa into, um, you know, the body, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it be through the gut or through patches or through inhaling as opposed to taking a pill. So we've seen like little incremental um, things that are important to the community, but yet we still haven't seen that breakthrough. We haven't we haven't been able to unlock what we need to unlock in order to bring truly transformative therapies to patients. So it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about innovation mm-hmm. because we have to continue to innovate. Again, these are real people who are struggling, and I'm not content just kind of hitting the pause button and saying, ah, we've got enough medicine now. We don't, we don't need new medicine, you know? And if we, if we just look at the price tag of things and we don't look any further, if we just say, oh my gosh, that drug costs this amount of money per month, we -hmm. should shut down those pharmaceutical companies. We should shut down those biotech companies without really diving into the issue to say, okay, what does the patient actually pay? What are the roles of pharmacy benefit managers in this? What is rebated? What's not rebated? Does our system need to change in more fundamental ways um, in order to truly address this problem? But it's easier just to demonize the people yeah. who are um, in the lab on a day-to-day basis <laughs> trying to make these, um, these molecules, um, trying to make them work and, and have them be impactful. So, so because of my personal experience, particularly with a disease where we haven't had a lot of progress, I'm really passionate about innovation. But the second part of what I'm really passionate about is the power of people to make a change when it comes to mm policy. Um, You know, we live in a country where it can be um, 
very discouraging sometimes to think, you know, are we, do our politicians have our best interests at heart? Yeah. Um, what, do I really make a difference? Does my opinion matter? Does my vote matter? All of those things yeah. are, you know, certainly a big deal right now. Um, but I have seen firsthand that when people are able to come to a state house, come into the Capitol, sit down with policymakers, share their stories, and if we can bring reasonable solutions to the table, we can make a difference. I mean, we can pass legislation that ultimately makes it easier for people to fight their disease. Um, and because of that, you know, that, that I've been able to see it firsthand, I, I'm always encouraged, but I'm even more encouraged because it really sets people on fire, right? Like, I can do this. My, my opinion does matter. My story matters. Um, my journey that I have as an MS patient or my journey that I have as a, an oncologist or an oncology nurse, I can sit down with policymakers and help them look at an issue in a completely different way that they wouldn't have been able to do if I wouldn't have come and shared my story. So mm -hmm. kind of seeing, seeing people feel empowered to shape the policy uh, process uh, is also something that I just am super, super passionate about and, and kind of keeps you going during those times where you're a little frustrated. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, um, it's so inspirational to hear you talk about it, um, Greg. And, I, I personally can relate to your passion about how Parkinson's disease has impacted your family. My, my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's a few years ago. Um, and yeah, watching him kind of early on before he even had a diagnosis was um, frustrating to say the least. And hearing you talk about how you know, there, there are some really great drugs out there, but the fact that we've, you know, just are limited to these drugs that are, that were developed back in the eighties and we don't have anything else is, is really alarming and, and concerning, um, as, as we're sort of looking at, you know, these people who are suffering, you know, with these, with these diseases every single day, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to make advances in this area? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think people, you know, and I do worry a little bit that, you know, we, we got COVID vaccines really, really fast. Right? I, know. I mean, you know, and people were like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we've already had a vaccine. Now, keep in mind, that was that whole mRNA platform. And I mean, it was that was already in existence. And, and it wasn't like we had to start from scratch to, yeah. to um, come up with the vaccine. But I think, you know, the appreciation that, you know, finding new therapies is really hard work. Yeah. Um, and, and there are really smart scientists who spend their entire careers in a lab working on new therapies that never see the end result of a drug being approved because of that high failure rate and just how difficult that is. So, uh, 
you know, helping people understand that and have an appreciation for that, that uh, when we do have a new therapy that really is transformative for patients, it's really something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cost of these meds, um, you know, initially keeping in mind, of course, that every drug goes generic, right? They're yeah. not going to be a branded product forever, um, but there, there needs to be a recoupment of the cost, but also, you know, revenue to fuel this research and development engine that we need to continue um, moving even faster. Um, that piece of the, the discussion is just something I think, you know, we work hard um, at Gridiron to just help people, to really help these companies um, tell their stories so that people have an increased appreciation. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, so much of what you said today has really helped me sort of shift my own perspective on, like you said, you know, demonizing the drug companies and um, not really considering all of the, the, the process steps, the money that it takes to get there, the time that it takes. And I just really appreciate you sort of laying it out in a way that makes it far more understandable and, you know, allows me and, and other listeners to consider kind of, again, the whole picture when it, when it, when it comes to, you know, the drug innovations. Yeah. And it's, it's important to, you know, uh, you know, one of the things you, you'll certainly never hear me saying, cause I, I, you know, we deal with it living with Parkinson's disease, but um, there are, and it's hard. I mean, out-of-pocket costs are a burden on people. Yeah. And so we need to acknowledge that something needs to be done. We need to acknowledge that, um, you know, there are policy solutions that can, you know, help alleviate some of these problems. But, you know, ultimately going and cutting off the hope, you know, this hope pipeline, which comes mm-hmm. from the R&D in these in these companies is, is certainly um, short-sighted. Yeah, you're right. It is. And you've, you've already given some advice to our listeners on sort of the role that they can play to positively influence healthcare policy. You know, one of them being primarily, you know, being willing to share their stories. Do you have other thoughts on what our listeners could do? Yeah. I mean, the, the key part is finding the right outlet for healthcare stakeholders to make their voice heard and to speak to people, you know, if it's somebody at a national trade association or other folks, but I think just starting with the realization that policy is impactful, mm-hmm. what members of Congress are considering, what regulators at CMS and HHS are considering, what your state legislators are considering impacts the process of how patients ultimately get the care that they need. I see a lot of times that people are like, well, you know, I, I'm just focused on get, you know, seeing my patients, treating my patients, or I'm just focused on, you know, fighting my disease. And I, I totally understand that. But it can't just be people like me. <laughs> it can't just be government affairs people and lobbyists and public yeah. affairs people um, being involved in the process. Everybody has a role to play. So I think finding the right people, um, either within your uh, professional organization, within the right patient advocacy organization, if they're doing it right, 
they're recognizing, especially when it comes to patients, but also to, you know, physicians and, and PAs and NPs that, you know, this isn't your primary job. You mm-hmm. don't have to, you don't have to go to the Capitol seven days, you know, seven days a week. Um, at the end of the day, we as government affairs and public affairs professionals will find the, t- the, the time that will maximize your voice. But you have to give that to us, right? You've got to you've got to be willing to step out and um, and acknowledge that it's an issue, and be willing to to share your perspective. Because mm-hmm. if it's just somebody like me, um, you know, in offices or um, you know lobbying on issues, you're that's only going to be so impactful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the the big part of it. Um, if, if you're if you're a healthcare professional and you're listening, I guarantee you that every trade associate, every um, professional association that you're a part of has a government affairs or a policy committee. You know, take the very easy first step of making sure you're on their email list mm-hmm. so that you can, you know, hear directly from them about what issues matter um, to your community. Uh, same thing on the on the patient advocacy front, you know, Almost every organization, although with some of the smaller diseases and rarer diseases, um, they just don't have that bandwidth. But but many of the large uh, patient organizations also have government affairs and public policy um, organization. You know, parts of their organization that you can get dialed into. So just taking some some first step and 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 not viewing first steps and and thinking about public policy as um, something that's not not a foreign language, um, mm-hmm. and and really continuing to to um, recognize how how important your voice is in the process. Oh, great advice! Great advice. Thank you for sharing that. We are going to switch gears and uh, go to our lightning round session. How does that sound? It sounds good. It sounds good. A little less heavy, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, Greg. Texting or talking? Texting, for sure. Really? Although you might not know that based on this podcast, because I, I, you can tell I like to talk. Uh, but um, it, yeah, it, on a day-to-day basis, short and sweet texts are, are kind of kind of my jam. All right. All right. Uh, favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in? I am a wine country guy. So, oh. um, you know, I, I love wine country. Um, Napa is a favorite, but probably my, my favorite little city and getaway is uh, Healdsburg uh, in Sonoma County. Nice. Yes, I agree. Great place. Great place. Uh, your childhood nickname? Oh, as a play off my last name, you know, uh, growing up in Wisconsin, you know, with a name like Chesmore, you got a lot of cheesy references. <laughs> uh, but uh, probably uh, Chesy is probably uh, the, the one that, that stuck the most. And that was mostly and you know, athletic teams kind of name. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, on a scale of one to ten, one being uh, dreadful, ten being you know 
super expert, how good of a driver are you? I am getting worse <laughs> as I get older. It's, it is, it is just something that I am accepting. You know, you get into okay. your 50s and you start to say, hey, it's uh, so probably a six. My son would probably say a four. Oh, <laughs> and, and I'm sure your son, if your son is driving, is he probably thinks of himself as a 10, right? Well, he's 15. So oh, okay, he, okay. He thinks, he thinks he's driving. Um, uh -huh. like, likes to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong, even though he's never spent, you know, a minute behind the wheel. Oh, he's already mastered the backseat. Of driver. course. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, we'll, we'll see when, when eventually the tables get turned perhaps for him. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? Uh, two to three. Okay. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty integral, uh, in my mornings. Okay. Okay. And, uh, what do you think the best age is? Oh my, it's somewhat relative, right? We all just want good health and we want to feel yeah. good. Um, but you know, I, I do feel like maybe 45 uh -huh. is a, <laughs> is a, is a great age. Although, um, you know, I think that retirement probably isn't bad either. So, yep. so I yep. guess if you could retire at 45, that would be ideal. Oh. Um, so <laughs> there you so, go. I, that, there. That's it. 45 and retired. Awesome. There you go. There's the best age. And here's my last one for you. Is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm All right. happy that parties are back, but, uh, but, you know, be cognizant of the double dipping rule. That's right. Double dipping will not ever be acceptable. Well, Greg, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of your advice and candor and, um, and information. It has been incredibly important and fascinating to hear. Well, thank you for your time, and I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Greg's passion for the work he does is palpable. He talked about the unique strategic approach his organization, Gridiron Public Affairs, takes to coalition building in support of its goal to positively shaping healthcare policy. Greg also shared some really important information about the Inflation Reduction Act and its immediate impact on Medicare Part D, as well as the chilling effect it will likely have on medical research and development. In concluding our conversation with Greg, he spoke about his personal journey being a patient advocate. So many of our guests have been personally impacted by a health condition and have provided pragmatic advice on how we all play a role in influencing healthcare policy. And Greg is no exception. Watching Parkinson's impact so many of his family members inspired him to take steps to make a difference. His actions have definitely prompted me to do something in support of my family members impacted by health issues. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and music from Caleb Justinger. Be sure to follow our series to stay on top of new episodes. 
share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Claire Vincent.